This is episode 25 of Cinescope. And snakes. Why'd it have to be snakes? Welcome to Cinescope, where our goal is not to criticize or to assign ratings, but rather to celebrate the movies we love, exploring story, characters, music, and relevance to the world around us. I'm your host, Chad Hopkins, and joining me today is Eric Woods to talk about one of our favorite films, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Eric, how are you doing tonight? I'm great, Chad. Thank you very much for having me on. I'm very excited to have you on. When I first started Cinescope, you were one of the first ones I sort of talked to about it, and uh, you expressed interest early on and eventually appearing, and so I'm glad to finally have you on for episode 25, a big number. Yeah, and uh, you're doing a great job. I, I love listening to your show, so I'm pretty excited to be on here talking about you know, like my favorite movie of all time. Thank you so much, and uh, I am really liking your show. I've, I've listened to a few episodes now. I need to go backwards a little bit and listen to a little bit more, but how about you tell everybody who you are and what show I'm talking about and just sort of introduce yourself to our listeners. Sure. Um, I host a 20-year-old soundtrack radio show called Cinematic Sound. Yeah, as I said, it's been on the air and streaming for 20 years. It was uh, first born on uh, Cable FM at Mohawk College in Hamilton, Ontario. We eventually made it to the FM dial. And then uh, after my son was born, uh, just before the 10th anniversary, I decided to call it quits on FM. But I kept the show going uh, online with the uh, help of a friend of mine. And uh, yeah, I've been streaming online for, I think, 13 years now. And just recently got the show listed on uh, iTunes, which has been great. The show numbers have exploded ever since that happened. Um, I'm syndicated on W Rock Radio, which is a California online streaming uh, radio station, as well as uh, Pod Tyrant. So, uh, you know, in the last year, it's, uh, the show's exploded and I've been hearing from so many, um, new fans as well as old fans who are rediscovering the show. So, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a weekly program right now. It's a two hour show. I try to do it weekly. Sometimes, uh, it just gets too busy where I can't, but, uh, you know, I try to keep it regular and it's just been, just been an absolutely great year and I'm, I'm looking forward to doing it for, uh, for many more years. Yes, what I like about your show is that it's very much a radio program that's available in podcast form. And so you you sort of introduce a track and then you play the track and sometimes they're minutes upon minutes in length and it's amazing. So for example, uh, when Rogue One came out last month in December of 2016, you released a Star Wars themed episode that was all about Star Wars music that was not composed by John Williams. And so you had Rogue One and this giant suite on there and then you had some video game scores from like forced unleashed and book scores i mean it was a very very cool episode and so uh i definitely recommend your show to anybody out there who has any interest in film music because it's a great way to explore music that you may not have thought of exploring before and you get to hear it in long form more than just like the 90 second previews on itunes yeah, it's been something that I've been trying to do since the beginning of the show is I tried to find out the right number to kind of give you a, a, an idea of what the complete score would sound like. And so 15 minutes was the sweet number that I came up with, or the 15 minutes was the number that I actually came up for the, for the sweets. And I always felt that if I can get about 10 minutes of commentary in there an hour, I can, 
I can kind of do the 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 ten the fifteen minute suites. So when I had a three hour program, I'd be playing nine scores on the show, and of course talking about the movie and the music itself. Context is so important to film music, but also trying to get in as much good music, even if the score isn't great. Trying to find those three or four highlights that, even though I might not like it, you might like it, and giving it to you in full form, not just like you said in truncated. 30 second snippets that we get on Amazon and whatnot. So that was my plan from the beginning. So I'm really glad that you appreciate it. I do. And I'm looking forward to, like I said, going back and exploring more of the, the back catalog as much as I can to, to find new stuff and to uh, find joy in the stuff that I already know and hear it with your commentary. So uh, definitely go check out Cinematic Sound Radio. Now, before we move on to our main discussion, just I want to remind all of our listeners to go over to iTunes, rate and review. Uh, it's a big help to us. If you want to do the same thing for Eric's show here, that's great too, because it's it's going to help us all out in the long run to build our audience and to introduce more people to film music and to good films. So if you want to help us out, do that and even click that subscribe button. Big help to all of us. And with that, Eric, are you ready to move on to our main discussion? Oh, you bet it. Excellent. We are talking about Raiders of the Lost Ark. We don't need that Indiana Jones and the... No. <laughs> no. no. Blasphemous. <laughs> so <laughs> this movie was released on June 12th of 1981 and was directed by uh, Mr. Steven Spielberg, who I, I've listed his filmography a few times on the show, but just some of the highlights, Jaws, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, The Last Crusade, Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, E.T. the Extraterrestrial, Schindler's List, Jurassic Park, Saving Private Ryan, War Horse, Bridge of Spies, the BFG, and I've been seeing, seeing news recently that he is working on the upcoming adaptation of Ready Player One, and I am very mm. excited for that as well. Um, yeah. Now, something I did not know until I started pulling stats for this episode was that Lawrence Kasdan, famed writer of The Empire Strikes Back, the best Star Wars film, wrote the script for Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yeah, he wrote a tight script, a tight screenplay, so good. And he's only just one part of the the magical cast of crew, cast and crew of this movie. It's just an all-star cast and crew. It is. It definitely makes sense that Lawrence Kasdan is the guy behind writing this movie. I mean, Empire Strikes Back is my favorite Star Wars movie. I don't think... Uh, that's a surprise to anybody because it's everybody's favorite Star Wars movie. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But knowing that he wrote Raiders of the Lost Ark as well, and he's behind these two excellent, outstanding films, just makes it even better and elevates it that much more for me. I agree. The music was by John Williams. For his filmography, you can see Spielberg's filmography, um, including the three Indiana Jones sequels, Star Wars, Harry Potter 1 through 3, and uh, plenty of others that I'm sure my listeners, your listeners know very, very well. Yep. This movie stars Harrison Ford, Karen Allen, John Rhys Davies, Paul Freeman, Ronald Lacey, and Denholm Elliott. So, all that out of the way, Eric, what was your first experience with Raiders of the Lost Ark? I saw this movie on a sick day when I was about seven or eight. It was on a Monday afternoon. And of course, back in the uh, early eighties. Uh, the thing to do of course was to, uh, rent yourself a beta machine and a couple of movies at the, uh, the local, uh, rental house. And one of the movies just so happened to be Raiders of the Lost Ark. And I, I had no idea they were watching it. And, uh, so I was sick and my mom came to me and it said, Hey, I think I have a movie here that you might like. 
And so that afternoon I, I sat there and just soaked it all in. I had never seen anything like that before. I mean, I hadn't seen many movies, but this thing just knocked me off my feet. Um, everything from, of course, the, the boulder rolling down and chasing Indiana Jones to, to the music, it all stuck with me. And it instantly became a favorite of mine, and it's still my favorite movie of all time. Yeah, like Rocky. This is a movie that I swore, sort of more or less equate with watching with my dad. I don't really know if I watched it with my dad all that many times growing up, but that's just sort of the memory I have is walking into the living room and it being playing on the TV and me sitting down for a scene or two. Um, but the first time I remember actually sitting down watching the movie and really getting into it was my sophomore year of high school. So, I mean, this is way late to the game. This was 07, 08, somewhere around that time period. And I fell in love with it right from the get go. And that year, especially was a big year for Indiana Jones fans because yes, Kingdom of the Crystal Skull came out the next year in 08, um, to not the greatest critical acclaim. I liked it. It was my first Indiana Jones film in theaters. So I had a blast and I've since seen Raiders in the theater as well. And I did this sort of, I called it Indiana Chad thing that year in, in high school, we went to California for a band trip and I escorted my friends all the way around Disneyland without a park map. And we called it Indiana Chad. Um, like, and I had the hat and everything. It, it was the silliest thing, but I, I quoted it in my band president speech. Um, my senior year of high school, the, the whole year is not mileage quote. I have the brown leather jacket. I dressed as Indiana Jones my sophomore year in college. I, I am a big Indiana Jones fan. And in fact, I have, uh, let's see, four movie posters in my bedroom. Two of them are Back to the Future. One is the original Star Wars and one is Raiders of the Lost Ark, the return of the great adventure. And so this movie, ever since I first truly watched it, has always been one of my favorites. And it's just an excellent, excellent adventure film. Yeah, it's really stuck with me as well. It's it's funny to talk about posters because I got two Indiana Jones posters in, in the room that I'm in right now. And I got a Back to the Future one behind me. My Raiders poster, however, is at work. <laughs> so it's, uh, it, uh, it, uh, it's on the wall beside me while I, while I edit throughout the day. So, um, but yeah, I mean, as for, you know, it's funny getting like gear from the Indiana Jones films. I, I didn't have a chance to do that until I finally went to Disney world, uh, when I was 21. So that was almost 20 years ago. And, uh, you know, we went to see the, the Indiana Jones stunt spectacular. Very cool show. And I had no idea that they were going to send us to kind of the Indiana Jones store because we just kind of ran into the show. And then, of course, as you come out the exit, there's all this Indiana Jones memorabilia. I uh, I almost bought out the whole entire store and I bought <laughs> a leather jacket, which my dad owns now. He wanted a leather, Indiana Jones leather jacket. So I got him the leather jacket. But, you know, I bought the hat, the whip, uh, posters, postcards. Um, anything and anything that I could just grab. And, uh, I had uh, like three or four bags full of, of just Indiana Jones memorabilia. Cause I never thought I'd, I'd get back to Disney world to buy more. And I just didn't, I didn't have a, ch there was nothing around here in, in, you know, Canada to buy Indiana Jones merchandise. And, you know, I could buy baseball caps, t-shirts and just anything that I could and, you know, surrounded myself with that stuff. So yeah, it wasn't until I was in my 20s <laughs> that I actually kind of feel like a kid again, um, getting all that sort of stuff and memorabilia that I didn't get a chance to when I was a kid. Right. Now, what what aspects of the story drew you in so much? Um, I, I think it was, 
you know, it's interesting. It, it felt like a one. It just felt like an adult movie. It was just something more mature. And it was like, I was, you know, my mom was sneaking me into the theater to watch this and, you know, we just watched it down in the basement, but she was like, Hey, I think I might, you might like this. And she wasn't going to tell my dad about it. And so it was just kind of seeing sort of, um, I guess adult themes and, uh, and just things that I would never see on television, but you know, he was, um, just the, the booby traps, the sense of adventure, the sense of fun. Um, I, the religious aspect of it really piqued my curiosity. I'm not a religious person whatsoever, but I do find it very, very fascinating in film. Just the, the kind of power of, uh, of a mystical creature or of a religious, you know, like a, or a godlike figure. So that just really fascinated me. And then of course, you know, finding out about the arc about 20 minutes into the, in the movie and then not getting a chance to actually see what was in it until like the last few moments, it just, kind of it just kept me going and wanting to get to the end of the movie so the the pace of it i i i felt even when i was seven or eight it just kept on going uh i was on the edge of my seat it was just so much fun it was just fun right it's got this very unique tone where it's it's a serious film overall but it's comedic when it needs to be it's always fun it's always this adventure pulp kind of feel feel as it was intended, right? Like, like I said, the tagline for the movie, or one of the taglines, was the return of the great adventure. George mm-hmm. Lucas and Steven Spielberg wanted to hearken back to those serial TV programs that you would see back in the the, the old days, right? I, I don't know if I could list out a specific year, but you had like pulp magazines back in the teens and twenties, and you had Errol Flynn movies in the thirties and forties, fifties, stuff like that. And it, it very much feels in that vein, but it also does feel like you were saying a little bit more grown up, and. I really like that tone that this film sets. Yeah, it really, you know, as, you know, I got older and I started researching more on the film and, you know, what these kind of Saturday afternoon cliffhangers, uh, you know, kids would watch on on Saturdays at the theater. And it you could just feel that in this movie. Like, there are so many different types of cliffhangers. Like, you could almost rip this movie apart into, like, five different episodes and you'd have a one cliffhanger after another, and you just want to come back and see these characters again to see what happened. And that's what I really like about it. And then, you know, there's so much that's just ripped out of um, the movies that George Lucas and Steven Spielberg grew up on. It's really just a love letter to the movies, and I absolutely adore it for that. Yeah, I think the the sort of pulp feel is epitomized in that first 10 15 minute scene where they enter the temple and there's the the big boulder chasing like i could almost hear an old-timey narrator breaking that Mm -hmm. into segments and it 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 fits in perfectly with that theme and that style now i i love how indiana is initially revealed to us there's there's a couple of times where he's quote-unquote revealed the first time is as he's walking through the jungle towards the temple he's got his companions with him and we just see behind him we see the hat we see the jacket we don't see a face yet we don't see a face until one of his companions tries to bring out a gun and shoot him and he hears the the hammer cock back and he turns around and with a crash of the whip there he is he's gone and that's where we see his face for the first time and that's just such a great reveal and we get a little snippet of the main theme and uh, wow, that's such a, a a great way to introduce our main character. And again, very pulpy. Yeah, but it's also just deadly serious as well. The, his face, there's no fooling around. Unlike the kind of campy, uh, goofy, slapstick Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, where, you know, Indy's cracking one-liners. 
you know, he, his reveal, he doesn't say a word. He just cracks that whip and he means business. And even, to, you know, when he's with Stopito at the entrance of the cave, he's taking no guff from him. He's like, we got to get going. He's kind of pushing him around and he's super, super serious. It's still a fun sequence. Um, even with a, a tip of kind of comedy, I absolutely love it when he snatches the, the golden idol puts the sandbag on and he kind of tips his cap thinking he's, he's done it. Right. And you know, the turnaround and it's like, Oh no, what is happening? Right. I just, I love those little winks and those little bits of comedy, not so much that it's obvious and it's an obvious joke or it's, it's played for obvious laughs. It feels very natural as part of the character, as part of the story, as part of the scene. And, and again, that that's not what, you get out of crystal skull and the same thing goes for um you know temple of doom and and, and last crusade they, they seem very grounded with the comedy the comedy is very natural and not forced and speaking of that this whole opening scene again with the boulder i love that it's almost entirely superfluous to the plot of the rest of the film and it serves entirely to introduce us to our character introduce us to his main antagonist and introduce the fact that he's a professor and he's after these archaeological finds and not necessarily anything beyond that. He, he is interested in the archaeology of it all. And of, there's some adventure thrown in. Oh, and we also get to find out, hey, he doesn't like snakes very much. And so we get all that in this opening scene that doesn't really fit into the whole Ark of the Covenant storyline plot. And so I, I, I love that it's just a fun scene that sort of sets up everything we need to know in order to proceed into the main story. Yeah, and it's it's what the Spielberg and Lucas were doing for the first three films in the sequence. They were always starting the movie with the end of an adventure. And then, you know, 20 minutes into the movie, you'd get into the real plot and story of, of the film. So we have, you know, him going after the golden idol of fertility in Raiders. It's the, um, uh, oh my God, I'm forgetting his uh, name, uh, uh, Nurhachi in Temple of Doom. And of course, it's the the cross of Coronado uh, with Young Indy in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. But what's so great about all three of those sequences? It's it's setting up the character without doing too much exposition um, or lazy exposition. You know, thinking about the the Jacques sequence, and we find out that Indy is afraid of snakes, and it's all said within four lines. It's absolutely brilliant. But we also find out his arch nemesis Belloc. And we, uh, you know, we find out everything that we need to know about him and it's almost everything we need to know about him. And it's all done within the first 15 minutes of a, like you said, of a scene that's just kind of like a, it has nothing to do with the rest of the plot, but it's still fun. It's a, uh, like an after school special Saturday morning. Absolutely. Kind of thing. Yeah. And I mean, the last thing I really have to say about maybe the story specifically, um, you're, you're free to add more, but there's just so many like classic scenes in this movie and i mean classic to all of film not just classic to indiana jones you've got the boulder chase you've got the running around being chased by natives you've got the the map traveling you've got uh shooting down the swordsman in the middle of the streets of cairo you have all these fun scenes that people would list like in top scenes ever you know it's it's those those kinds of scenes and there's there's like a dozen of them in this movie spielberg clearly knows what he was doing in making this film yeah, and I like that for an action adventure movie, there isn't a whole lot of action. There are some great action sequences, but it's not just, you know, start to finish action. And he allows certain scenes to breathe, like the map room, which 
is like three and a half minutes long and there's hardly any dialogue. There's the whole well of soul sequence, which is just a slow burn. And finally we get the reveal of the arc and what it looks like, but not its contents. You know, even after the desert chase, um, there's no action anymore after that. It just, we just kind of follow the arc and we're ready to see what's actually inside of it. And that's a 20, 25 minute sequence where, you know, for any other action adventure film and especially Temple of Doom then, ended on a huge action scene, like 30 minutes straight. But Raiders just basically calls it quits after the desert chase. And all we're doing is following the arc to see, like I said, see its contents. And that's what I love about it. Um, but the action is absolutely incredible. It's tight. The pace is amazing. It's very rhythmic. And you know what I also like about it, and I like about Indy's character, is that you know when he gets his butt kicked, I mean, he just he does. gets absolutely <laughs> annihilated in this movie. And what I like about it is that you can feel that he's hurt. He is beat up after every one of these sequences. And one of my favorite parts of this movie is right after the desert chase, they're outside um, uh, on the docks and Sala meets him and, and says goodbye. And he gives Indiana Jones this big squeeze and you just see Indy wince in pain. He's hurt <laughs> right. all over. And then what happens a few minutes later, Marion destroys him with that two-way mirror. And it's it's one of the funniest moments in the movie. Like I said, the comedy is earned in that sequence. And I just, he's beat up, but he, you feel like he's gone through so much. And I love action movies where you can actually feel the the pain and the suffering and how tired and exhausted the character is. I kept on comparing this uh, movie to Die Hard, another podcast I was talking about, and even the John McClane character, the outrageous things that he does, but you can feel he's hurt, he's bloody, he's sore, he's tired. And you don't get that in most action-adventure movies. You get straight-faced heroes who just kind of go through the motions, and it doesn't feel like there's any effort or anything earned. And that's what I really like about the Indiana Jones character, especially in Raiders of the Lost Ark. Right. And it really is a sort of culmination in those scenes with the solo hug and the two way mirror because he's he's had a long day or a long couple of days. There hasn't been basically any sleep because they dig through the night to find the well of souls. And he's terrified of all the snakes that he's having to confront. And he rides the the big statue through the wall. And then Mm -hmm. he fights the guy outside the plane. And then he has this big desert chase sequence where he's jumping off of horses and onto trucks and all that kind of stuff. And he goes through a beating and you definitely sense all of that by the time we get to those scenes. And you're right. That that does add a lot of, it adds a sort of feeling of authenticity to this kind of movie. Yes. Anything else to add, maybe story-wise? You, you know what I really appreciate? And I, I, I heard this on a behind the scenes uh, video on like one of the DVDs or Blu-rays, but, what I like about the the character's iconic. Um, and Spielberg says that it's besides, I think he said besides the shark from Jaws and E.T., it's the only other character that he can put in silhouette and you know exactly who it is. Exactly. And there's so many times that Indy's in silhouette in this. Even the begin, the first shot, he comes out of a silhouette uh, to reveal finally his face. And then five minutes later within the uh, the fertility idol cave, he comes again out of the shadows and into the light. There's a scene where they're digging for the Ark um, out in the sands of Cairo. There's a scene where he first meets Marion. Yes, yes, exactly. And it's so perfect. And you know exactly who it is. And and that all kind of comes together again in King with the Crystal Skull. His first introduction is through, a, a, you know, his shadow on the 
on the the car of the, the the I guess it was the Russian's car, and you see him putting the hat on, and you know exactly who it is. And I thought that was uh, with that that was kind of neat. I mean, again, it does help that Indiana Jones is iconic, but it's amazing that you don't have to show everything um, to get an idea of who this character is or or what he's like and how he dresses. Right. Just a quick aside back into that sort of Indiana Chad thing I was talking about. One of the things we did, we were in California, we were on the Hollywood Walk of Fame and I was wearing the Indiana Jones hat, of course. And uh, I come mm. across Harrison Ford's star. And so I take a picture with the sun behind me with myself uh, silhouetted <laughs> onto Harrison Ford's That's Hollywood excellent. star. Yeah. Yeah. I, all these pictures, guys, I, I will make sure to include in the yeah. show notes so I can share For with sure. everybody. It's 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 fun. <laughs> That is so cool. Anyways, let's let's talk about the characters just a little bit more in depth. So, what what beyond what you've said already do you have to say about Indy himself? Uh, you know, we what I'd like. <laughs> wow, there's so much. <laughs> I just like that there's kind of uh, there's two sides to him, and that actually comes out a little bit more in Temple of Doom than it does in Raiders of the Lost Ark. He's not necessarily your everyday hero. He's not really a hero. Um, he's you know, he's, he's trying to get the arc, but not for the reasons that we think that he's getting him for, you know, he's not out to save the world. Um, no. he kind of, he wants the arc and put it in a museum and he wants to get paid. Right. And that's the way I, I, f- I, I feel with his character. And that's what I like about him. It's a, it's very different than your everyday, uh, action hero is like I said, is out there to, to save the world. But I, I like that he's kind of wise cracking at the right moments. Um, He's brave. You know, to me, he was somebody I could kind of look up to, um, reminded me of my dad a little bit. So yeah, it's, he's, he's not a one-sided, very simple character. There's so much about him and he's not afraid to just, you know, gun somebody down in cold blood. (laughs) Right. I mean, the the amount of people that he just kind of, the swordsman, he just blew him away without even thinking about the crowd around, around him and whether he might've hit somebody behind, uh. (laughs) <laughs> the, the swordsman, but, um, you know, he's quick on his feet and, um, yeah, there's a lot of aspects of Indiana Jones that I like. Yeah. I, I like that. He's flawed. I mean, we talked about how he gets himself beat up and a lot of the times he, he gets himself beat up because he messes up. He makes a mistake. He, mm. he underestimates his opponents maybe, or stuff to that effect. He gets stolen from by Belloc twice in this movie or right. maybe even more than that three or four times when you count Marion into the, the equation and at the same time he's resourceful he's quick on his feet and maybe despite his shortcomings with his relationship with Marion where he's maybe not the nicest guy sometimes um, he and he sometimes has a little bit of a temper we still care for him and that relationship because we we see him trying and we see him apologizing at the start in Nepal and we laugh when he regags her after learning she's still alive yes. because yes. we know, you know, despite it maybe not being the nicest thing to do, he's sort of right. It's a smart move to keep her where she is so that they don't draw suspicion elsewhere. So we have faith in all of his abilities because he's shown us time and time again what he can do. But what I also love about him is that he's always surprising us. That desert chase scene is yeah. a prime example of it because you see, like I already mentioned, you see him jumping from the horse to the truck. You see him throwing people outside of the doors. You see him being thrown out a windshield, catching hold of the front grill, traveling himself under the truck, latching on, and then climbing back aboard. That That is the coolest thing. And you maybe not would have thought it possible to start with, but you, you see him mid attempt and you're like wow he's actually doing that he's he's doing this and uh 
we even show how much of a feat it is when he throw after he climbs back into the truck, he throws the driver out the same way he was thrown out and he's mm-hmm. just trampled by the car. Um, right. So he he's superhuman in one way, but not unbelievably so. And I think that it really adds to it that Harrison Ford did most, if not all of his stunts in this film. Right. Yeah. I, you know, going back to this character, I like that he, he's very knowledgeable, very smart and always seems to have a plan. But then when the plan kind of gets nixed, the, one of the greatest lines is him telling Sala that he's just going to make it up as he goes right? Uh, with the, with the truck chase. And and you can even, again, you see it. Those are little subtleties that you see when he's riding the horse of uh, chasing down the trucks. And he's just at the top of that hill and he's sizing up the situation. He really has no idea how he's going to do this and how he's going to take on 20 Nazis at once, but he just kind of sizes it up just enough to say, all right, this is what I'm going to do. And hopefully <laughs> I get through it. And I love that aspect about him. Um, there's an unpredictable nature about him. And, and that also comes through in Temple of Doom as well when, you know, he's after the Shankara stones, but then when he hears the children screaming and crying in pain, it's like, well, I guess we got to save them too, because that's not what his goal was. It was to bring back those stones. And he was ready to hightail it the moment he got those three in the bag. But then he changes his mind and then he has to figure out a, a way out of the situation. And I just like, again, it just making it up as he goes. I, I absolutely love that aspect of his character. Now, what about Marion? Mm. She is, she's the best indie girl by far. And I definitely agree. Her opening scene is fantastic. Um, and I love that it's all done in one shot. That whole drinking game is just done in one long shot. And it's amazing when you think of it. Right. Um, but her, she's strong. Um, I love the scene between her and Indiana Jones in the bar. Uh, her animosity towards Indy is, you can just, you totally feel it. And again, we were talking about exposition. You get a lot of what the two went through in, in their previous relationship with very little dialogue. Um, certain things are, are said and you kind of get an idea of what happened. You know, she was very young when she first met Indiana Jones, you know, he had a relationship with her and, uh, you know, her, her father was his mentor and we get a sense again that, you know, he, you know, uh, Abner's dead and that's it. Not how, why, what happened. It's just, he, he's dead and that's who he was looking for. And just the conversation between the two and she's in charge. She's in charge the whole time. You know, come back again tomorrow, Indiana Jones, um, before she makes her decision about the medallion and whether she's going back to the uh, United States with India. I absolutely love her. She's super, super strong. Right. She shows from that very first scene that she can hold her own uh, against anybody. I mean, here she is toe to toe in this drinking game with this big old dude. Uh, and she comes out victorious on the other side. And uh, like Indy, she's resourceful. She's smart, um, which is really showcased in the scene with Belloc um, in in Tannis where she gets him drunk and then pulls a knife on him. Of course, other outside factors come in and sort of ruin her plan. But up until that point, she was in charge of the situation. She was going to free herself. Um, and so I, I really think that it, it's cool that she has those moments. She does play damsel in distress just a couple times, like in the basket mm-hmm. game. She does uh, 
well, she gets kidnapped by Belloc in the first place and then thrown into the the Well of Souls with Indy. But she's never seen as weak or just a damsel in distress. She's always a strong character and um, she, she, she has this beautiful side and she's overall just like a great love interest and foil for Indy. She's not just there to be the eye candy. Yeah, agreed. Agreed completely. She's she's fantastic. Now, Belloc is another character I wanted to talk a little bit about because I I, I mentioned this multiple times in this podcast, but I love going back and watching these movies that I love with a little bit different intent than I would have before because I'm looking to dive in and find the deeper things. And so I focused a lot on Belloc this time around. And he is this smart character. He's smart. He's a smart antagonist, and I like that about him, but he's lazy. Something I noticed this time around was in that very first scene in in the jungle when he steals the idol from Indy. He just walks up and he snatches it, and he's like, he's got sweat dripping off of his face. And I mean, what did he do to earn that sweat, right? Right. (laughs) Here's, Right. Here's Indy who just ran from this giant boulder, barely escaped in the nick of time and yeah he's sweating but he has a reason to and so belloc he's sitting there he's got his jacket thrown over his shoulder in later scenes and he dresses smartly in the in the desert rather than being in work clothes and getting his hands dirty with the rest of them he's just there for the end result and uh, he expects things will work out for him because in the past hey they always have he got the idol he got the ark and he's just going to ride that to victory. And I mean, that that his misdeeds sort of catch up to him. Yeah, he's the ultimate kind of grave robber, but just robs the guys who are uh, robbing the grave. He just looks like a moron in the opening <laughs> sequence. It's like, what are you wearing, man? <laughs> right. In the jungle? Like, are you kidding me? And then you're right. He's he's in the, he's in a suit out in the, the, the Egyptian desert. Um, you're right. He's smart. He knows his stuff, but there is no way he was going to get through those booby traps in the opening sequence. And again, when it comes down to the the medallion and not knowing that it had two sides and digging in the wrong place um, just really shows his weakness. But then again, he's surrounds himself with smart people and tough people like any smart bad guy would. And, uh, but, you know, he's that's the only, that's the only way he can outsmart Indiana Jones. And especially that comes to, uh, one of the best examples is in the, the market, the conversation that Indian Belloc have, uh, just after Marion's supposed death, uh, Indy is trying to do everything in his power, not to strangle, uh, Belloc in that sequence, which is just a wonderfully shot sequence too. It's just one shot. Belloc is on the right on the right hand side of the frame. Indiana Jones, soft focus on the left hand side of the frame. You can just see him just gritting his teeth, wanting to get at Belloc. And meanwhile, Belloc's talking about, you know, burying a watch in, in the desert. And a thousand years later, it's it's going to be worth so much money. And it just tells so much about Belloc's character. But at the same time, that just Indiana Jones wants to kill him and kill him now. But of course, when Indy finally stands up to to do the deed, again, Belloc has surrounded himself with what, 30, 40 Arabs <laughs> right. who are willing to, to just end Indy himself. And it's, it's, you know, it's a funny situation and it's a funny scene because I, I forget that the children come in and save him. And it's, it, I'm just wondering whether, you know, if you, if, if it was a little bit more mature and a little more R rated, whether, you know, Belloc probably would have done him in there, even if it was kids or not, but that's just a whole side story. But 
you know, still a great scene. Um, and, and Belloc is a, is a great character that isn't so much a, a shadowy reflection of Indiana Jones because he's not, he just goes out and steals stuff and lets everybody else do the hard work. Right. Uh, he, he's always right on Indy's heels. So he does do a little bit of research, but it's almost like he reads the spark note version of history mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. that he, he, he just gets the surface level stuff. And Indy's the one who dives in and does all the, the hard work. Right. Um, Anyways, I, I really liked him as a villain, this viewing in particular. Um, now, Sala, I don't have a lot to say about Sala, but well, for starters, it's another John Rhys-Davies character after having Lord of the Rings last week talking about Gimli. Um, mm. And he he fills this, the same sort of role here as he does in the Lord of the Rings film, at least, where he's he's a, a, a good character. He's sort of the comedy relief in a lot of scenes, uh, but he never feels like he's over the top or like he's elevating the scene comedically beyond what it should be. Right. And that's the big problem I had with Sala's character as we got into uh, last crusade and the same thing with um, Marcus with Marcus as well. They yeah. turned into a lot of comic relief and it was, it just didn't work at least here. It was, again, we're talking about subtle comedy and I like that Sala eventually gets serious and, and talks to India about maybe not disturbing the arc. But every scene that Sala's in, it's just, he's so wonderful, so wonderful and a, and a wonderful actor as well. And, uh, you know, we already talked about the, the, the hug scene, which I think is just absolutely fantastic. <laughs> um, and, uh, but yeah, he's, he's a, he's a, he's a wonderful uh, minor character. And I, and I also get a sense that he and Indiana Jones have been friends for years and you, you kind of get that chemistry just almost immediately from the moment they started talking to each other, that they're able to kind of poke fun at each other but also have a very serious conversation and, and they're very respectful to one another. Oh, for sure. Uh, a couple of my favorite solemn moments. There was one where Indy is first descending into the well of souls and he sort of drops the last few feet and he's just staring the fa- into the face of uh, a snake and Sala yells down. See, I told you it would be okay. Right. <laughs> he doesn't right. see the other end of the conversation. And then right. um, there are a couple of moments when he sings. And my favorite one is after Marion kisses him before they depart on the ship. Um, and he, he, he pauses for a moment. They just sort of stare at each other. They walk off and then he, he goes off into this joyful song and he kisses, a uh, another person on the cheek and mm-hmm. it's just a good time. I, I like Sala yeah. a lot. Yeah. He's a wonderful character. He gets a couple of really good, good one-liners, the bad dates line, the, uh, the asps very dangerous. You go first was just <laughs> right. absolutely spectacular. And it's one of Spielberg's just absolute favorite lines out of Caston's script, um, just the delivery is perfect. And like I said, it it, it, those are, those are sort of the things that, you know, people who had maybe just met or don't respect each other would say to, to one another, but it's just like, it's a couple of buddies poking fun at each other. And I, and I, I really like that a lot. Now, um, the only other character I have listed is tote who is just a great villain. He's the kind of villain that you love to hate, um, because there's no sort of redemption for him in this mm-hmm. movie. Um, he, he's despicable from start to finish, but I, I always look forward to seeing him next on screen to see what next he does. And he, he, he has a couple of moments where he's truly intimidating and a couple moments where he's fake intimidating. Like when he, he pulls out the, the hanger yes. that sort of looks like yes. nunchucks or whatever. Like, yes. what is he going to do with those? What, what, what am I about to go through? And he snaps it together and, Oh, I'm just hanging up my jacket. Um, but then he comes to just a perfect demise at the end of the film, uh, the classic face melting scene. Oh yeah. Um, it's great. Yeah. He's, uh, he's someone that you, you almost forget about. 
um, after the after the raven burns down in Nepal. And it, again, it, it always it always comes back and surprises me every time I see it. It's like, oh right, you know, he comes back and shows the uh, the medallion impression in his hand from it burning into his hand. Um, you know, about how many more minutes after that whole sequence, like half an hour later, he just comes back. I just like that he's sort of dead serious and he means business and he doesn't have a lot to say, but you know that he's a, he's a Nazi henchman and he's going to go as far as he can to get the information that he needs. Right. You almost get the sense that he's close to Hitler. Totally. Just a little bit. Um, like yes, he's reporting directly to him rather than to (laughs) through his chain of officers or something. I I just get that sort of sense from him. And speaking of the medallion in the hand, I love that aspect uh, where you find out that they've created a medallion, but it's rougher around the edges. There's only markings on one side. How did they mm-hmm. get that? And then it's it's just, they don't ever give like an answer. They don't say it out loud, but we just see him, Heil Hitler, and yeah. hey, there's the the impression on his hand. And you, you have to sort of figure it out for yourself. Oh, okay. That makes sense. Right. Um, any other characters you wanted to mention before we moved on? No, I mean, because, uh, you know, Marcus is in it very, he doesn't have a lot to say, but you, you, you realize that he's a, in this movie at least, that he's a smart man, and he turns into kind of like a bumbling idiot in in Last Crusade. Right. You know, he mentioned he made mention that you know if he was younger he would have gone after the Ark himself, and I don't know whether you have to believe him or not. Um, but um, he's very knowledgeable, especially in the the sequence uh, where they're talking to the the Washington men at the beginning of the movie, and going through again that that the, the real only large piece of exposition that we get is, you know, explaining what the Ark is and what the medallion is, what the Staff of Ra is and whatnot. But still, that's such a great scene as well. And and you can tell that that Marcus is is book smart. He knows what he, he's, he's done his research. He's, he could be just as smart as Indiana Jones. But like you said, he's a little older, so he doesn't go on the adventures. And so that was, I think, a misstep when when they brought him back for, for Last Crusade and he just seemed like he was totally out of his element. I mean, it got a lot of laughs and, and some good gags but it just didn't feel uh didn't feel right um for for marcus and last crusade but i i thought the scenes that he was in um especially the setup to marion the very quick setup to marion right uh during the conversation in Indiana jones's apartment which again is a wonderful single shot as well um i, li- I like i like marcus as well I, I just don't feel like he was fully fully utilized to to even denholm elliott's strengths in, in last crusade yeah, I, I I like a couple of his moments in Last Crusade, but he definitely is. I, I remember the goofy parts of his character in Last Crusade. Um, here, I, I agree with everything you said. I love how smart he is, and I love that open expository scene because we're seeing both how knowledgeable he is and Indy is. We get to see the the truly book smart part of Indiana Jones in that scene at the yes. college, and uh, that's just as important part of his character as is the whip cracking fist punching. I mean, you get both sides of the character in this movie and that scene is where you get it. Yep. Well, let's move on to music. So what, what do you want to start with as far as music goes? Well, it's like the film. It's, it's my favorite score of all time. Um, made such a lasting impression on me when I was very young. I didn't get the soundtrack until 1995 when it was finally released, um, in an expanded form. Mm-hmm. DCC compact discs and it, I could just clearly remember the day that that arrived in my mailbox and running up to my my bedroom at the time and, and popping that on and just absorbing the the wonderful liner notes written by Lucas Kendall the presentation of the album and then just 
finally hearing all this music I've been dying to hear ever since I was a kid, just blasting out on my speakers and, you know, everything from the, the map room sequence that, that just big kind of relig religioso cue, uh, all the, the fantastic action music, hearing the desert chase music, you know, I've had a few copies of the Raiders March, but I, but never heard the, the authentic, the real London symphony orchestra performance of it. So it's just all around, um, just, I think it's absolutely perfect. It's again, like the film, not overly action packed, but it, there's so many wonderful themes to explore from start to finish. I, th I think it's just absolutely wonderful. One of the greatest things that John Williams has ever written and just one of the greatest scores of all time. Right. Hot off the heels of star Wars, he was continuing to sort of prove himself as, or prove his abilities as a thematic composer, because just like in star Wars, we have plenty of character and object and idea themes in the score. Um, and they're all, all at once different from star Wars, but familiar all the same. And I, I love that about it. It's, it's got one of the all time great main themes. It's catchy. It's adventurous. I love that. It's a March. Um, that's, that's, it's, I just love the main theme. I, I learned how to play it on piano when I was in like fifth grade, not like a full <laughs> piano arrangement, yeah. just the poking out the fingers. But it was something that one of the first things I learned when I first sat down at a piano. And, you know, Marion's theme is very reminiscent of both the Leia and the Han and Leia theme. Um, mm -hmm. It's got that same sort of wide opening interval. Um, but we get several different iterations in it here. The first time we hear it is in that scene we talked about earlier where Marcus and Indy sort of just allude to her, but we don't know who she is yet. And then when we finally meet Marion, we get to hear the theme again. And at various points in the movie, we get to hear like these quieter moments. We get to hear these big sweeping orchestral moments. It's, it's just a beautiful romantic theme. Yeah. It really doesn't come to fruition until the end credits. I mean, we get this big um, performance of it as uh, Marion finally kisses Indiana Jones on the, on the ship before he falls asleep. And it just kind of ends with these, uh, these, these quiet, these either bells or glockenspiel. Um, but you don't get a real full out rendition sweeping rendition of it until the end credits. And what's so great is that in March, we're finally getting uh, a, a legitimate recording of John Williams's concert version of Marion's theme. It's oh, coming great. out Sony Classical. And it's, uh, so this is the third John Williams, Steven Spielberg album. I'm not sure if you're familiar with those, but back in um, 1990, Williams and Spielberg produced an album along with the Boston Pops of their greatest hits. And then a few years later did another one. Um, and so now after all those years, they're finally doing a part three and ever since uh, Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, John Williams uh, created a, a concert version, a four-minute concert version of Marion's theme, which includes some of the new uh, Marion material from Crystal Skull, as well as that kind of sweeping rendition of Marion's theme from the end credits and put it in a nice tight four-minute suite. So we finally get to hear that for the very first time commercially uh, in March. But yeah, it's just a, a, a wonderful love theme. And, you know, that, that time period for John Williams between 74 to 84 he could really do no wrong no so many fantastic brilliant classic scores it was williams's golden age and you know 81's kind of like smack dab right in the middle there and and you know the scores just keep on getting better and better in the indiana jones series i mean temple of doom is just a, a whole other beast on its own what i really do like about the, the last uh sorry the 
Raiders of the Lost Ark score is that it almost seems a uh, kind of stripped away from um, a, a a bigger, um, busier symphonic sound. It's still huge, and you know when you hear the Indiana Jones theme in its full concert glory, it's really really big. But a lot of the action music, um, it's not really full. It's not huge. It's not overly busy. Um, sometimes only one section will be playing something and another section will be playing something. Another section will be playing something. You can clearly hear the instrumentations and the separate sections of the orchestra. And a lot of credit goes to recording engineer, Eric Tomlinson, who recorded a lot of, uh, Williams's material with the London symphony orchestra during that time. But even the desert chase, it's so stripped down. Uh, you know, when, when the, when Indy kind of gallops down the hill with the horse and, and attacks the trucks, it's, it's a tuba that's leading the the orchestra right. with a, with a, with a snare and some strings. That's it. It's it's not overly busy like some of Williams' material, you know, the past ten years or so. It's very very simple, um, but always rhythmic, always driving, always fun. It sounds a lot bigger than what it really is. Another theme that I really enjoy is the arc theme. Um, yeah. And something I noticed this time around was we we. Most of the time when we hear it in the film, it's mysterious. It's alluding to the, the sort of the mystery of the arc because we don't know what's inside the arc and we, we don't get to see it until later in the film, like you mentioned earlier. And in the final scene where the arc is finally opened, that theme almost becomes antagonistic. It becomes mm. confrontational and it's not something I had ever really paid attention to before. But it, it really takes away the mystery because there is no mystery anymore. We see what's inside. We see what's happening. And it's frightening. And it turns into a frightening theme in that scene. Yeah, it's it's like a, a kind of like a soft breeze um, at the beginning. Like you first hear it when Indiana Jones opens up the, the giant book on the table um, during the conversation with the Washington man. And he shows the, uh-huh. the light of God and it's played on a on a flute. And then we get that big religioso statement of it. Um, in the map room, um, then you kind of get a, a, a realization of the the kind of mystic aspect of the arc. But you're right; it's it, the theme really earns its its pay <laughs> right at the end. It goes full blast, and that's what I like about it. There's a, there's a there's an arc to the theme, not just the story or the score in itself, but certain themes have its own arc, and. And it, 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 Williams does it so brilliantly. He does it even with Marion's theme. He does it with Indy's theme. Um, I just absolutely love the way he builds his scores. And, and this one is just another perfect example of just not just building the score and its uh, music as a whole, but just also the integration with the themes, like the integration between the arc theme and the medallion theme and how they come together and how they work in perfect harmony as well. It's absolutely brilliant stuff. Do you have any particular favorite moments with the score in the film? Uh, yeah, like the map room was always a, a favorite, uh, the desert chase, what more could be said about it? It's, <laughs> it, it really plays out in two parts. Cause it, it is quite, like I said, you know, it, it's not as busy, but it's pretty busy during its first four minutes or so. But then the moment that Indiana Jones gets shot in the arm, it changes completely. And it, then Williams introduces underneath all of it. It's the indie rhythm the dun, dun. Dun, 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 dun. It's a very slow build, but that's the rhythm underneath Indiana Jones's theme, right? And it's really uh, propelling us forward. And it's a slow burn. It's such a slow, slow burn until finally, you know, Indiana Jones wins the day after going through everything that he does. Uh, you know, over top of the the truck, under the truck, and the whip, and 
everything like that. But as you listen to that piece progress, it gets faster and faster and faster and faster and more busy. And I just absolutely love that aspect of that cue. Uh, one of my favorite renditions of the indie theme is the, uh, the moment when everybody sees him on the submarine and it's just Williams giving it all with this. It's like, here's the biggest moment. It's not even the most heroic moment, but it, uh, it puts a smile on my face always when you see Indy jumping the, this onto the sub and, and making his way onto the top of the submarine and Williams's theme, uh, brilliant brass performances. The, the London symphony orchestra sounds absolutely amazing. Those brass players are, are legendary. And that's just, uh, again, one of my favorite moments. Uh, like I said, the whole thing is just one giant highlight, but those little things, I also like, you know, the, the moment when Marion blows smoke into uh tote's face, and it's, uh, I think it's just kind of like a chime, you know, the way he matches the action during the airplane fight. Mm-hmm. A lot of the times it's these big orchestral hits whenever Indy punches somebody very, um, Mickey Mousey love that sort of thing. I, I love it when composers hit certain sync points and they're playing along to the movie. It seems like they're having a lot of fun as well. So I think John Williams had a lot of fun with this, with the, with this score in this film. Yeah. What I always love about a Williams score is the variety that is featured throughout and so at the like at the start of this one, you get this sort of jungle music with the low flutes playing this melody, and then it goes into the pizzicato strings for the spiders on their backs, and there, there's the idol and the sand switch music, and then when the boulder comes and he's being chased down the hallway by the boulder, you have these like frenetic, insane trumpets double tonguing for all their might, and it, it's it's amazing. And that's not the first time we get this sort of fast brass action, like you were talking about in the desert chase. We get some there as well. And then in like the basket game scene, there's mm-hmm. playful strings and woodwinds, more pizzicato kind of stuff in the strings. There's the desert chase. I mean, it, that's just a great action cue overall. You've already talked about that a little bit. Um, and I'm a horn player, so I'm always going to point out the horns in that track mm-hmm. are just amazing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, all throughout everything, you get these intrusions of the Indiana Jones theme in moments of triumph or victory or uh, bravery. And it, it's just so great how... John Williams fits all these different sort of genres of music together. You have horror, you have jungle, you have all kinds of things in this score. And John Williams is able to fit them together seamlessly. Yeah, you, you hit hit the point right on the head right there. Um, same, same goes for the film. It just has everything. It's just a hodgepodge of everything. Romance, action, adventure, uh, you know, magic, mysticism it's like a million different genres all in one movie. And it's the same thing with Williams's score. And it, like you said, it could easily go all over the place and, and, and not be focused, but it totally is. And it's all kind of comes together with that, with that classic Indiana Jones theme. And you were talking about uh, those, the, the pizzicato strings. And I like that, you know, some, two of the biggest action sequences, you know, the one at the beginning when he's running away from Belloc and, asking Jacques to, to start up the plane. And that's a, you know, he's running away. And instead of big furious music, we're getting kind of like pizzicato strings and the same thing with, uh, with the basket game. Could you imagine a cue like that written for a movie today? I no, couldn't not at all. <laughs> um, there's no way you'd get away with that. I don't even think Williams would do something like that. Um, so yeah, it's such a, it's such a different score. And that's what I like about it. It doesn't sound like anything else. Um, it's, yeah, it's just clearly Indiana Jones music. Now, we're at the part of the podcast where we talk about the relevance of this film, the sort of takeaways. So I, I'll, 
go ahead and go first. The, the first thing I've written down is the quote, it's not the years, it's the mileage. And I, this, I mean, this is a fun adventure film, so I don't like, there's not like huge life lessons to take away here, but this is one that I, I've always really appreciated because it's about your experience. It's your experience that separates you, not your age. Though, yes, those often go hand in hand. Um, you need to go out and experience life. You experience the world and Indiana Jones truly does that. He he goes out there and he lives his life and he's racked up a lot of mileage. Um, and it, it really shows in his experience throughout the film and how he develops throughout the course of the film and how he reacts in different situations. And you really see everything he's been through has sort of culminated in this story of this this chapter of his life. Yeah, I don't. Um, unfortunately, I don't read into this movie as as deeply as 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 you do. But it's um that's an interesting point. Um, the only thing I can think about, you know, when it when it revolves around the character of Indiana Jones is is how um, selfish she could seem. But then at the end, it's it's more about you know, you're right. It's like living life or making sure that you're you're helping others. Um, that comes along that comes out in, in in temple of doom and also in last crusade you know he's he's reaching for the for the cup and you know he could easily slip out of his the out of his father's hands to to get the holy grail and it takes his dad to, to finally say his name indiana for him to realize that there's more important things in this world than just yourself and, uh, you know, you try to live life to the fullest and sometimes you're just not going to get what you want. And I mean, does Indy ever come out of any of these films, you know, with the prize? No, no, <laughs> <laughs> never. And, uh, I always thought that was kind of funny, but yeah, I don't really dig too deep in, into the movies. I just think that, uh, just how, you know, what I think about it is just, especially somebody who's my age, I'm in my forties and just how influential it was on just you know, my, me, my friends and people my age and, and how, um, you know, I, I wanted to become a filmmaker because of it. And a lot of people who had watched this movie wanted to become movie makers. They just wanted to make great action adventure movies. And, you know, when I was in high school, I made my Indiana Jones movie. And a few years later, I, I kind of made my own original adventure, uh, a film. It was a 70 minute feature and you know we we took a lot of things from indiana jones and threw it into our scripts and you know you see that around the world a lot of people are really heavily influenced by this by this movie and, and what it did for them and a lot of people working in hollywood these days will say that you know raiders of the lost ark is the reason why they got into filmmaking so um yeah that's what that's what come that's what i get out of the movie for for me and i also get a, just a sense of fun and and just feel like a kid again it always makes me feel like a kid again Right. I don't try to dive too deep into Indiana Jones because, I mean, mm -hmm. it's Indiana Jones. Right. Um, but speaking as to its effect in my life, I, I actually found a list on Facebook today that I made back on October 5th of 2010. So this was my freshman year of college, my first semester, and I did a top 10 list of films, directors, actors, film composers. And number one or number two in my top 10 films this was my freshman year of college. Top, number two was Raiders of the Lost Ark. Number two on my top five directors was Steven Spielberg. Number three on actors was Harrison Ford. And number one on film composers was John Williams. And so, I mean, right there, I think you can see th this had only been two 
years, three years after I had first seen the film. So already it had been, it had made a huge impact on my life and in my taste in film. And it wasn't really until a year or two after I made this list that I truly got into film criticism and to diving in deep and exploring things a little bit further. But even before then, I was a big Indiana Jones fan. And so I, I think that really speaks to my personal taste. And I would probably still rate, rank Raiders of the Lost Ark somewhere in my top 10 films. I'm not much in the habit of making lists nowadays, um, mm-hmm. but it, it it definitely is one of my favorites. And um, what else do you have to say? Yeah, no, I, I, we're talking about lists. I mean, Spielberg's always been my number one. Harrison Ford's always been my favorite. Uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark's always been number one. And John Williams has always been number one. It just It's just everything that came out of Raiders of the Lost Ark it, it's amazing how influential it was. And, you know, going back to a point that we made earlier on in the show, just how it was just an all-star cast of, of, uh, of creative folk. Um, everything from Kasdan to Michael Kahn as an editor to Lawrence, Ka- uh, sorry, to, uh, Douglas Sokum as a, as the, the cinematographer, you know, Frank Marshall, um, uh, Kathleen Kennedy. Right. Uh, it, it, it's ridiculous. Ridiculous! The talent that's that is in this film, and you just kind of see where everybody went or came from, and 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 just how you know Lawrence Kasdan went on to make great movies. You know George Lucas. We can't forget about George Lucas and, and what he's he did, and well, then eventually uh, end up being. But that's besides <laughs> the point. But um, I always felt that there was no way that Spielberg and Lucas we're going to make a bad Indiana Jones movie. And so, you know, Temple of Doom blew my mind and I'm still mad at my parents for not taking me to see it in the theater. Um, <laughs> I finally saw Last Crusade in the theater um, at a very old theater in Hamilton. It was the last showing uh, of that theater. So Last Crusade was the last film that they showed. And finally seeing Indiana Jones on the big screen was was quite a, a thing. And, you know, I had fun the first time when I saw Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, but then I kind of knew that something was off. Right. <laughs> and uh, So it kind of like up until about 2008, I thought, man, these two Spielberg and George Lucas, they could do no wrong. There's no way they can. Um. So, but yeah, it just, there's just so much talent in Raiders of the Lost Ark. And there's just so much that you can, I mean, you're talking about culturally, but there's so much that you can learn from this movie, just from the talent alone. And you can read the screenplay and you can follow Kasdan's career. You can look at Douglas Solcom and, and just how brilliant uh, he was. And it's just so sad that later in life he went blind and that just bugs the hell out of me. Um, I mean, as a, as a videographer and, and a cinematographer myself, I, I could just not imagine what it'd be like going blind um, and being such a visual person. You, know, you have Williams' score, you have Spielberg's talent behind the camera, you got George Lucas and his story. Just wow, wow. I mean, when when do you get stuff like that this these days? And I hate feeling old when I'm saying that, but like seriously, when are you going to have that much talent come together and make a film and make it so good, so, like a film, an action adventure film that earned numerous Academy Award nominations, including a Best Picture? It's crazy. It is crazy. All those things you just said, I I agree wholeheartedly, and um, you know I'm I am 25, and I, I definitely recognize what we had then that we don't have now. Um, this movie came 11 years before I was born, and mm-hmm. I, I wish they still made them this way. I, I wish I could go back. I wish I could go back to the days of original Star Wars films and original Indiana Jones films <laughs> yeah, and yeah. Back to the Future and all those and yeah. experience them then. Um, I'm thankful to have him now. Don't get me wrong, but I, I I wish we could have more of what we had then because we really were rich as far as uh, these these men and women all in their prime 
putting out this incredible entertainment. Yeah, I agree. I'll tell you that I'm not sure if you ever plan on having kids at some point, but the best thing, uh, but in order to get those experiences again is to see these movies through your child's eyes. Oh, I'm sure. And so getting to show him, uh, Raiders Lost Ark was was a joy, and seeing him being absolutely terrified by the ending of the movie. Um, but you know, one 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 thing that's really special, and my, my my son's ten right now, is that we're going to see Raiders Lost Ark live in concert in March. That is and, awesome. Uh, and I get to I get to take him, and we saw ET, and he really enjoyed that experience over the over the holidays. And uh, you know, my my wife enjoyed it as well. And I said, you know, I thought that her and I would go, but she's like, no, no, no take Liam. And, uh, he'll have a better time than I would. And it's just great that I get to take my, my son to, to see my favorite movie and a movie that he enjoys, but also to, to hear a full symphony orchestra play one of my, well, my all time favorite score live. Every single note is just going to be absolutely mind blowing. And, uh, I'm really interested in, and again, you know, it's funny. This is the first time I am going to see Indiana Jones on the big screen. I have never seen indiana jones in the theater before wow that'll definitely be quite an experience yeah it's gonna be it's gonna be amazing so you can experience these films as if watching them for the first time uh later on in life and it's uh it's just great having you know my boy with me and even my daughter my my daughter just loves back to the future so when she saw that for the first (laughs) time i was like wow she's totally digging this and so seeing my favorite films and introducing them to them as they get older has been an absolute joy. And like I said, it's like seeing them again for the very first time. You're actually the second person today to mention that uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark concert. Uh, Yes. Except the other person who mentioned it to me is in Australia somewhere. Mm. Um, So I'm going to have to look out. I mean, if it's in Canada and if it's in Australia, surely it's going to be coming near Dallas, Texas sometime soon. Oh, for Um, (laughs) sure. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I mean, they're doing, there's like dozens of these concerts for any movie you can think of that, you know, is basically a classic from the, from the eighties and even nineties. I mean, crying aloud, they were doing the matrix at one point, uh, <laughs> I know back to the future. I'm going to go see Jurassic park next year. Awesome. Um, I saw back to the future a year and a half or so ago oh, with the concert. It must be amazing. Yeah, it was, it was. Um, and I was seated to where I could see the conductor and his sort of click, click track screen. Yeah. Um, so you could see when he was going to cue things in and being able to see that up close and personal and hear everything live. Plus Alan Silvestri composed additional music for mm-hmm. that concert experience. That was a compilation of themes from the other films. Um, right. And so it, it was a very cool experience. And so anytime I can go see a film that I love in that format. I am definitely going to jump at that. Um, yeah. Now, E.T., I don't know if I could emotionally handle that because the score oh. for E.T. just gets me anyways and the movie gets me. We'll have to see. We'll have to take that on a case-by-case basis. But <laughs> I, I went with uh, old high school buddies, uh, you know, their wives and kids and the dads. We were all in tears by the end of it. Um, you know, thank goodness the lights are still down and, you know, they're playing music over top of the end credits, but yeah, ET always gets me, absolutely gets me. And hearing it live is, it's thrilling. It's still thrilling. It's absolutely amazing. So that's amazing. Yeah, don't, don't feel bad about it. Cry your eyes out. <laughs> Enjoy it. <laughs> Definitely. Well, um, any, any closing thoughts on Raiders of the Lost Ark before we close everything up? Uh, no, you know, it's, it's, um, it's a movie that I can watch at any moment. Um, in any language, my dad's caught me a few times watching it in French and Spanish. 
um, <laughs> just because it was on television and there was nothing else better to do on a Sunday afternoon, but I'll catch it and watch it at any time. Um, it's just a, a wonderful, fun, smart popcorn film. Uh, they don't make them uh, like they do. Um, they don't make them like this anymore. And, uh, yeah, just, you know, have fun with the, I mean, it's, it's really, I, I honestly think it's timeless. It's just a timeless movie and even the score itself. Um, same thing. It's just classic filmmaking, classic film scoring. Um, it's just a, it's a great time at the movies, but it's not a, a, a dumbed down, uh, story that's just full of action for the sake of action there's a there's a great script in here it's wonderfully shot wonderfully acted brilliantly directed everything about it is sensational so i yeah love this movie love the trilogy and uh you know i can watch them at any time i'd I'd watch it right now if i could well i don't know if there's much else i could say um like i said it is (laughs) it is one of my all-time favorites and um you know one of my goals with cinescope was Every time we talk about a movie, you know, it comes with our highest recommendation because that's mm-hmm. sort of the focus of the show. Now, with Raiders of the Lost Ark, people definitely didn't need our recommendations to go no. see and fall in love with this movie. But hopefully, listening to this episode, maybe you're feeling the urge to go back and put it in the Blu-ray player or pull it up digitally or whatever format you have. Definitely go rewatch and re-fall in love with the movie because it is definitely one of those movies that you fall in love with a little bit more every time you watch. Yeah, I agree. And uh, with that, that is the end of the official 25th episode of Cinescope. We made it to 25. Thank you so much, Eric, for being here with me. Oh, this was a blast. Uh, I look forward to every one of your episodes, and uh, I hope I can join you again sometime in the future. Thank you so much. We'll definitely have you on again. Uh, Contact for the show, facebook.com slash Cinescope podcast or at Cinescope pod on Twitter. Again, go to iTunes, take a couple minutes out of your day, rate, review, subscribe, it's a big help to us. Um, remember, you can also email feedback and ideas to thecinescopepodcast at gmail.com. And you can also use that email address or any of the social media to say, hey, Chad, I love this movie. I want to talk about it with you. And I would love that. Uh, right now, we are booked through mid-February, which is awesome. Um, but I will definitely look forward to scheduling anybody who wants to talk about a movie they love sometime in the future. Um, Eric, where can people find you online? You can find me on Twitter at Sinsound Radio, on Facebook at Cinematic Sound. Also, check out the radio show, CinematicSound.net, and all the links to Facebook and, uh, sorry, not Facebook, to iTunes and or all your favorite uh, podcatchers to, uh, to listen to the show are, are, is there. So, yeah, I hope you get a chance to, you know, new listeners out there or anybody that's listening to this program gets a chance to, uh, uh, to, to listen to my show. And, uh, you know, I'd love to hear from you as well. Yes, and again, Eric's show is really, really cool. Definitely go check out Cinematic Sound. Um, a lot of the people I've had on the show on Cinescope are people who I've met through Twitter through talking about film scores. And so they, they, they have their own film podcasts or music podcasts, and they're all worth checking out if you're interested even just a little bit in film music, especially Eric's because it's a great way to discover new stuff and stuff that you might not have checked out without his recommendation, without him playing large chunks of it for you. So go over Cinematic Sound and check that out. Now, the ble- now the best place to find me is on Twitter at Chadadada, that is C-H-A-D-A-D-A-D-A. 
facebook.com slash chad.hopkins. And all the show notes, all the contact information, pictures, hopefully, are going to be at thecinescopepodcast.com. And that is all for this week. Thank you again, Eric. It's been awesome having you on the show. This was a lot of fun. So uh, thanks for having me. Definitely. And thank you, everyone, for listening to episode 25. I'm Chad Hopkins. This was Cinescope. And we'll be back next week with episode 26. Have fun and celebrate movies. Mm -hmm.